Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. We are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, an Alabama man is trying to get legislation passed to make state agencies follow the same uh, safety standards that private employers have to follow under OSHA. Professor Blair L.M. Kelly talks to us about the black working class. Tristan talks about uh, what is going on in Madison City. All that and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show today, we've got a phone number. The line is not open, but as always, you can send us a text message and we might respond to it on the air. You can also send us a voicemail throughout the week and we might play it on the next episode. You can call or te- uh, call during the week, leave a voicemail, or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. We will be taking calls during overtime today. So if you want to call in and talk to us, particularly if you are a Teamster and you want to talk to us about the new tentative agreement or the new contract that has been ratified, uh, today we are going to be talking in overtime to Sean Orr about what's next for uh, Teamsters at UPS. So uh, if you're a UPS Teamster and you want to talk to us, give your thoughts about the contract and what's next, uh, then then holler at us in overtime for sure. We're really interested in your thoughts. Uh, if you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap up here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us anywhere you find anything online. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, all at the Valley Labor Report. You can also bookmark our website, tvlr.fm. Last week, we released an original an exclusive to TVLR article about the first ever Starbucks strike in the state of Alabama in Scottsboro, Alabama. We talked to multiple uh, Starbucks workers and uh, have their words in the piece as well as community supporters. Um, So uh, I am proud of the piece. Check it out, tvlr.fm. Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners, folks. So if you think that what we're doing is valuable, uh, it takes money to keep this thing afloat. So send us money, tvlr.fm slash donate. You can make a one-time donation or set up a recurring auto pay monthly donation of any amount, and any amount helps. Uh, you can also buy our merch at tvlr.fm slash store. You can buy tickets to our live show now in two weeks. Two weeks from tomorrow. We are having our first live show at Shenanigans Comedy Theater with local uh, working comedians, local union members, union-made beer, 
lots of good stuff. So uh, buy your tickets there. $20 for general admission, admission, $35 for VIP. That gets you in an hour early to talk to us and our guests. Uh, so tvlr.fm slash store for that. Um, and if you're a member of a union, then please do think about getting your local to sponsor the show. Uh, we could not do this without our local union sponsors. Um, it really means a lot. And you can reach out to me for more details on that. Let me add a disclaimer that any viewpoints or opinions expressed in this program belong solely to their author and do not necessarily represent any organization or sponsor. We welcome all of our listeners, whether you're on YouTube, Facebook, Unclaimed Mysteries Internet Radio, WVNN, WZZA, WHIV, or through your favorite podcast app. We are proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network and encourage our listeners to check it out. All right, so um, everybody knows uh, that this weekend is Labor Day weekend. It's a very big deal. Um, we are really excited to be um, uh, to be having a three day weekend. Although, uh, well, I mean, it's still really a three day weekend. Uh, but I am going to be hosting. Um, I'm going to be hosting the Dale Jackson Show. On Labor Day from 7 to 8 a.m., folks. So if you uh, haven't gotten enough of us <laughs> on the radio this morning or in overtime on uh, overtime after the show is over on the radio, then uh, tune in to WVNN 7 to 8 a.m. Monday morning. We're going to be talking about Labor Day and unions with conservative author, columnist, an editor, former editor at the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, Sorab Amari, about why he is a conservative who thinks that unions are good, conservatives needs to, need to support unions, and the government needs to put the force of the state behind the labor movement. So really excited for that conversation, 7 to 8 a.m. Monday morning on WVNN. Um, and, you know, uh, Adam, you had some comments about Labor Day that you wanted to, to say this morning, too, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, happy Labor Day, y'all. I just wanted to say that, you know, we are not journalists. Uh, we are not media professionals. We're just some labor movement guys who want to help build the movement, grow the movement, and strengthen the movement. We hope that this project and this platform can do that. But we can always strive to do better and to keep learning and improving I had a trusted comrade reach out this week with some constructive criticism, and I'm really glad he did. I needed to hear it, and it was good to come from him. You know, we got to be willing to have tough conversations and reflect and be open to feedback. And as much as I, like, don't care for necessarily appearing on the Dale Jackson show, I respect Jacob for doing it uh, and for being willing to have conversations with folks, you know, maybe outside of our normal um you know, our normal circle. Personally, I am just humbled and appreciative that there are folks out there listening to what we have to say, that there are folks out there who are interested in this program and what we discuss, and that there are folks out there who dig what we're doing, or at least what we're trying to do. We can't do it without y'all. We need your feedback. We need your engagement on social media and the apps. We need your donations if you can afford it. This is a collective working class project that is by and for the working class in the Tennessee Valley and beyond. You know, the bosses and the politicians have their own media. Everyday working class Alabamians deserve media too. 
and the labor movement needs media, and nowhere is it more needed than the South. We need to spread the word. We need to get the message out about the power of unions, the power of collective organization, the power of solidarity, the power of organizing with your coworkers and your community. We need to share the stories of labor struggles throughout the South. We need to share the benefits of trade unions and the pathway they provide for a better life. We need to share the facts about unions, why they're good for workers, and why we need a lot more workers in unions. We need to educate folks about their rights. We need to share the history of our labor movement, how we fought and struggled for every right and benefit working people have, and how we can learn from it for the fights and struggles ahead. We need to discuss the issues of the day from a working class perspective, not a partisan perspective. We need to hear from labor instead of management. You know, we're not always going to agree, and we're not always going to get it right. Our labor movement is very diverse. Our working class is very diverse. And so no surprise that our audience spans a broad spectrum of perspectives. That's pretty cool, and uh, we hope that we can facilitate dialogue. We need to be able to engage with one another in good faith and find common ground where we can if it can help the people. We have to always ground ourselves in addition and multiplication, not subtraction and division. It takes all of us doing what we can so that we can all get what we need. So please help us get better. Please help us grow and get the message out to broader audiences, whether that's through upgrading our website or purchasing airtime on additional commercial radio throughout the region. We'd love to expand into new markets. We know we have fans in Birmingham, Mobile, Chattanooga, Anniston, and elsewhere. We'd love to pursue an Alabama labor history miniseries. We'd love to appear on other shows and collaborate with other projects. We've got a couple special projects already on the way, including special features of our friends at the Ironworkers and IUPAT. We'd love to expand live in-person outreach, and that includes even you know showing up at your events, so definitely keep us posted on those. With your help, we can grow this project to further amplify the voices of the working class in the American South. So finally, I hope everyone has a great Labor Day weekend filled with fun, food, football, and fellowship. Personally, I am excited to watch my Southern Miss Golden Eagles play. I know plenty of folks are pumped to watch Bama and Auburn and Tennessee, Mississippi State. If you're, if you're an Ole Miss fan, I'd rather you just not tell me that so that I don't think any less of you. I know there's a big Labor Day celebration in Tuscumbia, which has mm -hmm. been going on for a real long time. This is the 104th one. And to the south of here will be a big celebration at Tannehill State Park. Please let us know about the Labor Day festivities in your neck of the woods so you can give us some good ideas on what we can try in Huntsville next year. Hopefully you will take some time this Labor Day to reflect on sacrifices made by workers past and present and how we can all get more involved in organizing our working class. Whatever you do this weekend, I hope you enjoy it and come back ready to build the better Alabama that is not only possible, but necessary. 
Absolutely. And just a really quick fun fact about the uh, Tuscumbia Labor Day celebration. That is where Jimmy Carter announced his presidential campaign. So uh, pretty wild uh, that, that 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 was so kind of politically and culturally relevant right. uh, back then that you had a presidential candidate announce it here in Alabama. So uh, with that, we're going to go ahead and take our break. Uh, we're going to be right back talking to Professor Blair L. M. Kelly about her new book, The Roots of uh, uh, Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class. Really um, looking forward to this. Read one. it last week. Uh, I really liked it. Excited to talk to her about it. So stay tuned, folks. We're going to be right back. In Alabama, more than 200,000 of our friends and family members are living without health care coverage. Often folks can't stay healthy enough even to keep their jobs. We can fix this. It's time for us to find a way to close the health care coverage gap so that people can remain at work. Let's make this a priority. Let's close this gap and cover Alabama. To learn more and how you can help, visit CoverAlabama.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAC. I'm attorney Tommy Senior. 
When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senior Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senior Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senior Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senior Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senior Law. The name with proven results. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Come on, you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. And uh, we are the Valley Labor Report. If you have anything to add, you can give us a call or a text message. Uh, Lines are not open. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. So uh, Professor Blair L.M. Kelly is the author of a new book, Black Folk. The Roots of the Black Working Class. She is the Williamson Distinguished Professor of Southern Studies, Director of the Center for Study of the American South, and Co-Director of the Southern Futures Initiative at the University of North Carolina. Professor Kelly, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Really happy to have you on, and you now live in North Carolina, uh, but after reading your book, I know that you grew up in the North, but clearly, you know, every title that you've got is like Southern this, American South that. You have a really deep interest in the Southern United States. Why is that? Um, It's where my family's from. It's where um, my roots are, and um, I've been in North Carolina since the 90s. So <laughs> I, I know I'm not born here, but my mother was and mm-hmm. um, I have family here. And so I, I feel connected to it. And, and for me, the South is the, the region that tells us about the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, it forecasts so much of what we have to deal with um, as with the nation as a whole. And so it's not a, a region to abandon or to ignore. So mm. Absolutely. Uh, could not agree with you more there. And, and I really appreciate when I see um, academics and people who do research and study and try to tell the story of, you know, uh, Southern folks um, and uh, the working class here in the South, because uh, in a lot of ways, it really is overlooked. Um, And so, you know, folks familiar with with literature, particularly, you know, literature uh, by and about black folks are going to immediately notice a similarity uh, in title to W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, The Souls of Black Folk. And mm-hmm. having read both, you know, I can see some similarities, but you actually take pains at the beginning of your book to point out some of the differences in your work and his. What would you say are, are some of the things that 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 connect your connect your work to the that earlier piece? And mm-hmm. what are the things that make it distinct? Um, you know, Du Bois is our greatest uh, scholar activist in 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 African American history. Um, so I by no means uh, are think am thinking that I have anything to do to compare myself to his um, amazing body of work that really is still setting the standard for so many of us. Um, that said, when I 
thought of the title black folk i didn't mean like souls of black folk i meant like black folk like mm-hmm. like how we address each other like you know black folk always gonna do such and such or man i love black folk you know right. that right feeling of it so for me it never was i forgot about Du Bois really honestly until my editor was like are you going to address the elephant in the room and I was like what's that and he's like you in the introduction we're going to have to talk about you know that you titled your book after Du Bois I was like I did <laughs> so, and it was funny I went to Twitter and I said to um, my Twitter followers I said when I say black folk what do you think of Mm. And all the black followers said, my grandmother, church, oh. having to wear pantyhose on Sunday, food, da, 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 da. And all the white people were like, oh, Du Bois, his amazing work. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I did not so, realize that. I thought that there was like a conscious thing there, but oh, that no, is fascinating. It's like goofy and unconscious. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, I really like it. I uh, folk is is a word. I I say that word a lot. I like it. I think it's a very good word. Um, and so I appreciate the uh, I appreciate the title uh, even outside of the reference. That that is yeah. uh, so. I it's a great something. word. It's ungendered. It's, we mm-hmm. have very few ungendered words. Right. I hate when people put the X on folk because I'm like, it's already mm. ungendered. Like it's already yeah. doing all that work. So you don't have to do it. <laughs> yeah. Southern folks already gave you a super great word. You ain't got to make it, you know, so yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah, totally it's already agree. transcends. It already there you transcends. go. There you go. So, you know, the, the project of the book is, and, and, and you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but it, it seems to me to be an attempt to demystify uh, the black working class and to correct some assumptions about it in two key ways. And one is attacking the notion that black folk, um, you know, today in, in some sense, but more than that in the past and particularly uh, under slavery and Jim Crow, that black folk did unskilled work. And, mm. uh, and and you go you know to to great lengths in the book to show that actually no you know there's there's quite a lot of skill in the things that black folk did and and then in the second case that there was a compliance and apathy that they mm-hmm. had under the systems of slavery and Jim Crow mm-hmm. um and that and that it was you know um uh, the the great you know yankee saviors kind of came and 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 gave them all this and and they didn't do anything to fight back against their oppression and and you know the evil that was done to them under slavery and jim crow and and, and since talk to us about those uh, uh that the project of your book so for me uh the two those two things are essential and central to what i'm arguing um i I'm always insulted when people say unskilled labor or menial Mm. labor, um, because I would like to see those folks who are designating and defining labor go do that work um, and and see how well they would do. Mm. Um, Every every job takes a skill set and a body of knowledge and a set of practices, and people become very skilled at them over time um, in doing that work. And so when I looked at my laundresses or my sharecroppers or mm. um, postal workers or maids, they were they had a set of skills and they had to know how to do it quickly, efficiently, well, um, in some cases, quite perfectly in mm. order to survive. And so um, I was looking at the reels of 
farm workers during the pandemic that the United Farm Workers would, would, would put out. Of, I was just um, about to mention that. <laughs> people bundling um, mm-hmm. radishes or cutting asparagus or leaning off trucks and, you know, holding their bodies in the air as they cut mm-hmm. and, and wrap and package things the way we see them in the supermarket in one fell swoop. And I, I mm-hmm. you know, who who's saying unskilled? And why are we right. saying that? And and that seemed to be a vestige of another time where we had this sort of hierarchical um, race-based mm. set of notions that I think um, don't serve us well anymore. And so I, I blew them up in this book. Mm. And hopefully people won't say that anymore. <laughs> right. There you go. Yeah. The, 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 the phrase is, is done now, I think. I, I don't think we're going to be seeing it anymore after this book. And I'm really happy about that. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, that is fascinating that you thought of the United Farm Workers because that is I was thinking about those exactly that that Twitter account exactly because there is really, I don't think, in the modern day, another piece of media that I have seen that so more aptly attacks that notion of unskilled labor because it is it you know i would recommend people if you're if you don't follow the united farm workers the the union united farm workers on twitter follow it and go through their media tab because they're constantly putting out videos that just will make your jaw drop if uh if you're being honest about how skillfully they do the work and then they'll also juxtapose that with how little oftentimes how little uh they're being paid for this work and yes. and your jaw will will drop again uh necessarily and so the two of the standout um professions that you mention in the book uh mm-hmm. trying to kind of attack the notion that they're unskilled you, you referenced washerwomen and letter carriers mm-hmm. um and both of those are really kind of uh, thought of as as unskilled, uh, but especially washerwomen, women who yeah. wash clothes, right? The you know, b- y- you say that, and people are typically they're not going to think of oh that is you know that's skilled labor, <laughs> but uh, but it really was. Talk to us about what they had to do to succeed in their work. So you know, the black women who emerged from slavery. Um, they had that skill of, of washing clothes and it, it required a lot of knowledge, um, wisdom about how to create tools, how to make soap, you know, a lot of things that we call, you know, artisanal soap and da, 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 da. They, mm. they were doing that right. <laughs> um, prior to the advent of any technology that we take advantage of to wash our clothes or to, to mix anything or make anything. Um, they were recycling materials in order to, to bring to their yards, to, to burn for fire, to use for pots, um, using different things to squeeze water out of things, um, then pressing with an iron. The reason we call it an iron is it used to be a piece of iron um, mm-hmm. where you had to wrap a rag around the handle in order not to burn yourself and heat it up in mm-hmm. some coal and, and then not burn the clothing. You had to find that right temperature for the iron. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it. I mean, again, if we had to wash our clothes that way, um, most of us would just be like laying somewhere and crying because right. we wouldn't have the skill set. And it was a skill set that was passed down over generations. Mm. And Black women really held a monopoly on that work um, because in enslavement, they were the the people who did that work. And they they know, they know understood their power as, as a, a question you asked me earlier that I didn't fully answer. Um, Reference that in ens- enslavement, they understood 
that they had something valuable that people would want. And they could set the terms for their labor going forward and freedom. Mm. And they did. And so it's it's really amazing to see um, their consciousness that didn't have to be raised by some outside source. They didn't have to be uh, educated about mm. their role in society. They understood from the work itself and observing society who they were and what they could do and what they could fight for. And not only do people think of, you know, Uns- uh, uh, washerwomen is, is maybe unskilled, but the, but when you think of, like kind of like you were alluding to, when you think of washerwomen, you don't think immediately of of kind of a, a militant and organized working class. But actually, y- you were. talk about how washerwomen, uh, in their creation as such, were some of the biggest forms of resistance that the black working class did coming out of slavery. Absolutely. I think the power of, you know, their choice at the very beginning, um, the white uh, customers wanted them to wash clothes at their own homes, at their Mm. homes, so the clothes wouldn't go away and they could have control and control over their bodies, control over their time and the control over the pace of their labor. And washerwomen collectively, individually, collectively, Mm. across the South, all- tap into this idea that like, nah, we're going to do this at home. We're going to do it at our own homes. We're going to mm. watch our own kids. We're going to take care of our own household tasks and we'll do it at our pace. We'll, we'll come get it on a Saturday. We'll bring it back to you on Friday. You know, congratulations. This is what you're going to get. And I, right. I think it's so powerful that the, the decisions about how this work would be done was made by black women. Um, in the very right. first moments of freedom and Jackson, Mississippi, there's a group of women who organized a union in 1866 mm-hmm. I mean, if that doesn't teach you everything you need to know about how workers can think for themselves, I don't know what what would. Absolutely. I've, I found that so cool that, you know, they that was the first thing that so many black women did across the South um, that that's really, you know, just amazing. And, and their resistance didn't stop there. And, you know, you mentioned they formed unions. Uh, they mm-hmm. went on strikes and uh, one of, you know, there were a couple of reasons why they had, you know, so much power. And, and one of them was that there was real skill that is requ- that was required at that time to be a washerwoman. And, you know, I guess if you kind of when I stopped and, and thought about it for a little bit, you know, it made sense because, like you said, like there's soap. You have to get the proportions right for these chemicals <laughs> so that you're going to clean the shirt, but not deteriorate it or stain it or put a hole in it you've got to have an iron like a literal iron that you heat with a fire (laughs) and you have to get it to a perfect temperature so that again it doesn't burn a hole in the uh in the garments you know that so there's real skill there but additionally there was a social stigma around Mm -hmm. being a washerwoman (laughs) and there was an anecdote that you told about a former slaveholding man that really illustrated that uh, uh, that stigma. Can you uh, tell us that? Yeah, that story is crazy. When I found it, I was like, okay, sir. So there was a man who had um, had had a plantation, had you know a full complement of hundreds of people who all walked away um, at the end of during the Civil War, and he was struggling to uh, take care of his family. He was you know older, and he had two daughters. And he was like, well, no, I got I to gotta try to wash these clothes myself because I can't 
degrade my two daughters by having them be seen outside washing mm. their own clothes and washing our, our household clothes. It it will destroy the family. So it's better for me to go out there and try mm. and figure out how to do it. And I, that's when I was like, wow, there really is, you know, the racialization of labor was really, that was deep. That right, was really right. deep that to see white women doing their own laundry. And, um, you know, there's a beautiful book by a, a historian named Tara Hunter to, called To Join My Freedom, which I've loved mm-hmm. for a long time. And I keep recommending it. I will say her name rhythmically. She she points out that, you know, the poorest white women would save their pennies to get a washerwoman because it just, mm-hmm. um, it, it dented their stature in the community to have those clotheslines and pots in their own yard because mm-hmm. it was thought of as, as Black women's work. Right. And that that was such a bizarre kind of mm-hmm. idea that that it, that it was so racialized as, as you know that that even the poorest would try to uh, uh would try to farm this work out and you know over the core as, as the years went on uh you know like like you mentioned and and like uh in in your book you know they went on strikes uh they withheld their labor and so there were some attempts to try to get poor white women to take up this work. Um, and you mentioned one, <laughs> one op-ed that the guy had to basically apologize for, for suggesting that white women idea. should also do this work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was like, well, we could call it something different and they could maybe work in a factory and maybe they could do, you know, he was really trying to like build up this infrastructure that would make it slightly okay. Mm-hmm. And nothing like that ever happened anywhere. In, right. in the country, 65% of all laundry washed at one point is washed by Black women in this country. And we're, mm-hmm. Black women were, you know, uh, less than 20% of the population of working right. women. <laughs> yeah. And and you mentioned, you know, I, I listened to an interview that, that you recently did on KQED. And, and you mentioned there that, that for the proportion of Black women washing clothes to be 65%, in some areas, it almost certainly had to be 100%. It was 100%. Right. Absolutely. Because you've got areas of the country where there are basically no black people, you know. <laughs> yes. Yes. And the, and the people who are probably washing the other laundry were probably um, Chinese mm-hmm. uh, Americans. Right. And not white Americans either. <laughs> right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. the, you know, the washerwomen are, are really a, uh, a, a, a great example of. Both of the things that you try to do in your book are, are both of those kind of central items, the the showing that there's skill and then also there's there's a resistance there. Uh, the other one that I wanted to talk about was the letter carriers. And, you know, so I'm a unionist. I'm a union member. I'm an officer on my labor council and I have a union radio show. So I know about the postal strike of the 1970s, <laughs> but I did not know about the organizing and the all black union of postal workers that came before it and that you argue was really central to the postal strike in the 70s actually happening. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. So for black folks, postal work is 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 working protest, is working resistance. Um it's the only working class uh set of labor delineated in the constitution. And so it was esteemed it's it's part of our citizenship it's part of our uh outlook as a nation and yet uh the nation passed laws banning black men and women from participating in it um only after the civil war do you have any numbers of 
um, black men who will begin to work in the postal service and then black women. And it is a fight the entire time. Um, there are communities in um, the South that don't hire their first um, black postal carrier, letter carriers um, until the 1950s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And uh, that federal employment was so important. And so the, the change happened because um, black workers who did gain access immediately began to join unions and organize and fight. Um, and their outlook was essential to making space for black people to, to join, um, fight for their space in the Postal Service. And um, they, what's interesting to me about black unionists is consistently throughout history, they're not just concerned about their own rights um, in their own sort of realm of organizing. They're, they're civil rights activists. And they are always thinking um, more broadly and about more coalition. And so it, it makes sense that the leadership of Black postal workers and the tradition of the leadership of Black postal workers in a unionized space uh, leads to the, that, that strike in the 1970s that's so impactful on the entire nation. And, and there's a, a wonderful okay, postal, there's a wonderful postal historian, um, Philip Rubio, who I want to shout out here, who's also a union postal worker and turned historian, um, who whose work I, I am um, really thankful for in illuminating this this larger history. And the uh, you know the the Pullman porters are similar to the postal workers in that that they are a you know that is a career that's open to uh, black working folks. Um, fairly early on that that pays better that allows them to be a little bit more educated and allows them to be well traveled um and i found your section of the book about the pullman porters to be a uh a really um i i thought a helpful correction in some of my own imagination about the pullman uh company because mm-hmm. uh you know when when i hear pullman i mm-hmm. think of Eugene Debs, right? Yes, exactly. In the strikes and stuff. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. But the good to know that he was awful to white workers too. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It was the 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 guy was just terrible. (laughs) (laughs) But but you know, in many ways, you know the or or you know, I mean the 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 black Pullman unions, uh, uh, the Pullman porters were really. Uh, you know, m- more consequential to the history of the company and the trajectory trajectory of the company than even the you know the white conductors, wouldn't you think? Absolutely, absolutely. The the Pullman porters, uh, George Murmur Pullman, wanted this all black male force because he thought it would remind people of you know the antebellum South and you know being swept away in luxury and you know having a black manservant waiting on you. Mm. Um, he incidentally made this all black male. Uh, more educated, more well-traveled, more versed in the world, black male uh, uh, working force and black women as well. There were some Pullman maids and um, they organized. They had to, they had to fight really hard. Um, the Pullman company did so much to suppress um, the union in every way it could with spies and um, you know trickery and checks written, blank checks given to leaders and all kinds of things and firing folks. Um, but they they persevered over decades um, of, of trying. Uh, it's really a 10-year period where A. Philip Randolph takes the helm. Uh, he's not a Pullman porter himself. His brother had been one at one point. And they need someone from the outside to help to give them some strength 
um, mm. so that not everyone can be fired. And they eventually, after a 10-year period, organize, but then they build the civil rights movement. Then they um, mm -hmm. you know, create the infrastructure that leads to the March on Washington uh, that we know about in the 1960s. They, they push FDR to uh, dissemble the segregation in federal employment. They, they do so many different kinds of things that go beyond uh, just their own needs for wages and, and decent hours. Mm. Uh, and just to go back quickly to the postal carriers um, uh, to illustrate the other point about the, you know, attacking the notion of unskilled labor, um, the president of the United States tried to break that strike uh, with the National Guard and was not able to. Absolutely. Um, th that that unity that we're talking about, it, it created a, an argument that society as a whole understood um, that their folks didn't want to to support this, and um, the folks that they tried to bring in as scabs from the the military couldn't do the work. They couldn't efficiently deliver the mail <laughs> because it's skilled labor, <laughs> right? And so it's just, it was just a it was an amazing moment in our history as a country uh, for bringing together so many of the things that we we need to remember now. Um, and we need to focus on now in terms of uh, the strength of labor and the importance of it and, and honoring it and, and treating people with respect. And Absolutely. Um, you know, so the book is really great. We're talking to uh, Professor Blair L.M. Kelly. I really enjoyed it. The title is Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class. And, you know, you know that we're a union talk radio program uh, and we are on the radio in Alabama. Uh, mm -hmm. And so why do you think this book is what in particular do you think this book has to say to uh, Southerners and Alabamians and, and unionists here in the South? I think um, what's really powerful for me um, is, is twofold. Um, I, you know, I use my, my personal family stories, the stories that were passed down to me about um, their lives as, as Southerners, as migrants, as people who were looking for a fair treatment. And um, I draw on their wisdom and their knowledge of the world and their everyday stories. Uh, no one in my family was um, a famous organizer. No one in my family was a famous civil rights um, veteran. They were all everyday working people. Mm. And yet, to, to look at the lives of everyday working people of from the South is to look at wisdom and to look at uh, a collective knowledge and to look at strength. And when we wanna figure out um, good models for how we can go forward as a country, how we can think about uh, what's possible in the future, uh, they provided those good models. And the everyday people in my family, the everyday people in other people's families, um, or who I, whose voices I wanted to glean strength from to, to write this book. And so um, we have a lot to learn from everyday working people. And um, I hope the country is finally starting to wake up to that. And, you know, that's a really great place to kind of wrap it up on, because this is this is really an interesting time for working folks in the United mm -hmm. States, because they're appears to be a resurgence in militancy among workers. There's a resurgence in interest in labor organizing. A new poll that mm -hmm. the AFL-CIO commissioned last week just came out that said 88% of people under the age of 30 
have a positive view of unions. That is astronomical. Um, That's great. I mean, you can't get nine out of ten people to agree on just about on anything. anything. No. And so, you know, there we have these high-profile labor struggles, the UPS Teamsters, yes. the UAW, yes. the uh, the Starbucks uh, stuff that's going on, the actors and the writers on strike who, mm-hmm. if, if you think of, of, you know, working people that may be more and less sympathetic, the actors and writers are going to be at the least sympathetic end, just because of how people conceptualize of Hollywood, yes. not because they're yes. less deserving, of course, because, yes. you know, but people just, they think Hollywood and they think, they think it's fancy. Exactly. <laughs> and so, uh, but even in that context, mm-hmm. uh, the, that poll said that something like 70% of Americans were on the side of the actors and the writers. Yes. Um, and this is all, you know, uh, uh, you know, but it is amid a context of 50 years of neoliberal economics um, yes. and that in many ways has returned us to the Gilded Age. And so, you know, mm-hmm. what do you make of the current moment for the working class generally and the black working class specifically and how the history that you've uh, traced to this point is important in understanding the current moment uh, as well as, you know, uh, our potential futures? I think the pandemic called the question. Um, mm-hmm. I think we were kind of sleepy and doing a lot of work and um, nobody was really thinking about how any of us were orienting our lives or sacrificing too much. Um, and then the pandemic hit and we created something that we called essential workers for the first time. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. who's that? And those folks had to keep working and they had to keep plugging away and they died um, at higher rates than everyone else. And they happened to have been... Um, more black, more brown, more native than everyone in the country and more working class than everyone else in the country because they they didn't have the the luxury of staying home and, you know, staying safe. Mm. And so as we came out of that crisis moment, I think a lot of people reflected, you know, we had the, the great resignation. We had all these moments where people were like, oh no, we can't get people to work. Like, hmm. And then it was interesting to me that, you know, people weren't saying, oh, so we need to pay more. And so we need mm-hmm. to give better benefits. We need to like, you know, give them insurance, you know, fun things like that. And so um, the, the market shifted, right? And, and mm-hmm. But it shifted in a way that enabled workers to really say, hey, we deserve a bigger piece of what we produce as labor. And people finally understood um, I think that those high numbers in those polls are uh, indicative of this moment uh, and something that if you probably asked 10 years ago, people wouldn't have agreed. But now people understand, you know, when folks start dying at their jobs, uh, that serving others and providing important resources in our hospitals, in our schools, in our, you know, all these different kinds of spaces, we all of a sudden we're like, oh, Okay, yeah, this this is this is needed, this is essential, this is skilled, this is valuable. And and how do how do we do better uh, than we've been doing? And so unions can really step into that space and and you know break out of the the bad rap that um conservatives have given unions for generations. I'm a union baby myself, and I um, you know, my mother always taught me the value of, of each and every little thing that she had because she was a union member. Mm. Um, and so I think that we can begin to teach 
those little things that, you know, will make life uh, more fair, more decent uh, that can come from, from union work. And, and for me, Black folk is a reminder <laughs> that the union work has to be uh, collective. It has to be broad in its scope. It cannot be just about like, well, just us. We need to just mm. improve us. It really has to say workers, people who work, people who labor deserve more, that we all um, need to advocate for one another. Um, really broadly. And so that's something I've been encouraged to see in the organizing and, and the lesson that um, Black workers and Black folk um, can give us about the power of thinking broadly about what we deserve. Professor Blair L.M. Kelly, the book is Black Folk, the Roots of the Black Working Class. Really enjoyed the conversation. Recommend folks get the book. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to go ahead and take a quick break, and we're going to be right back with Tristan Gilbert. Tristan is our resident Madison City Council watcher. He's going to tell us it's been a couple of months since we've had him on, so uh, when we get back to the back from the break, he's going to talk to us about what's been going on at the Madison City Council. We will be right back. Stay tuned. In Alabama, more than 200,000 of our friends and neighbors are living without health care coverage. Often folks can't stay healthy enough to keep their jobs. We need to fix this. Let's close the health care coverage gap. To learn more, visit CoverAlabama.org. Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower-than-average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. The Laborers International Union of North America, Local 366, is proudly recruiting North Alabama workers to work construction and nuclear plant maintenance. If you're interested, please contact Donna at their training center to start the process. That phone number is 256 415 7452 
Again, that phone number is 256-415-7452. No experience is needed. Free training is offered, but you must be able to pass a background check and a drug test. Local hiring that grows our community with good-paying jobs that have benefits is their mission. Live better. Work union. Local 366. Feel the power. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. I'm attorney Tommy Senior. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senyard Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senyard Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senyard Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senyard Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senyard Law. The name with proven results. radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morris and my co-host is Adam Keller. If you've got anything to add, you can send us a text message. Phone number is 844-899-TVLR. Appreciate everybody that's been hanging out with us in the chat. We got a $2 super chat from Strom from South Carolina. Thank you. Solidarity from South Carolina. Also says, I may have to fly to Huntsville for the live show, folks. Uh, So if you don't want your ticket to go to Strom, you're going to need to go ahead and get that because there are only 40 tickets total. So you're going to want to go ahead and get one of those. Um, uh, Appreciate uh, folks in the chat. Infinite content. Will Vonda. Uh, Vonda was our guest on Shop Talk last week where she talked to Adam about what labor councils are, why they're important, and how to be good at being one. Uh, so that was a really good episode of Shop Talk. We appreciate her coming on the show. Absolutely. Pittsburgh Dude 87 uh, Michael, Jose, uh, Alex, 4-5, Huntsville Dim Worker. Lots of folks hanging out with us in the chat. We really appreciate it. Um, so uh, let us go ahead and talk to Tristan Gilbert about what is going on in Madison City. Tristan uh, regularly, he always watches the Madison City Council meetings so that you don't have to. <laughs> it's been two months since we last spoke to you, Tristan. Um, welcome back to the show. And what's been going on in Madison City? Good morning, Jacob. Can you hear me? I can. Right on. Okay, so Madison has been a bit quieter since the entire uh, special election calmed down back in May. Uh, of course, the uh, they voted not to adopt a city uh, city manager form of government. Uh, but there are a couple trends going on, and I'll tell you about them. Uh, so the first thing that I've noticed every meeting, the council has a lot of contracts, a lot of money going into recreation. Of course, there's the new Trash Panda Stadium, the uh, Toyota Field off of the highway there. Um, this uh, this past month, um, one of the one of the people that manages those parks was talking about buying two Thorguard lightning detection systems for the parks. It sounds really cool, but they're uh, 
they're these uh, advanced warning uh, storm systems I think would be better than having a 16-year-old umpire trying to shuffle people off the field when there's a storm coming in. Mm. Um, and uh, there was one particularly uh, passionate commenter I think I sent you a clip of who uh, wanted to see more uh, more courts of a specific kind in the area. Do you have that clip? Yeah, let's go ahead and play that, Adam. What's the number one sport in America today? What's the fastest growing sport in America today? Pickleball. If you don't support pickleball, you're behind the times. My wife and I play in tournaments in Alabama, Georgia, and Tennessee. We've been to all kinds of rec facilities. Why don't we have them in Madison? I know we're building one south of 60, uh, 565, but uh, that was promised, uh, announced last year, but have we broken ground? Is it going to be this year? What's the delay? Last year, it's estimated 23 million people played tennis. You know how many people play pickleball? 36 million. That's 13 million more people. <laughs> Nobody, very few people play tennis anymore. Go out to Dublin Park, which I am every night, by the way. Pardon me, I'm, I'm late for playing tonight. <laughs> I got to say, I love the passion for pickleball. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this guy yeah. is the real deal. Um, if I, if only he... he could advocate for, like, Medicaid expansion that hard for, <laughs> as he does for pickleball. Man, like, man, right, you right. Almost have, yeah, you almost have to wonder if, like, the Pickleball Association is feeding this guy lines. And <laughs> uh, how, how, dare you, how dare you suggest he is on the take from the big pickleball well, I didn't see any sponsored jersey, but the man did show up in athletic wear to the city council meeting. He said he was going to a match right after that. So, uh, uh, and where I is he going to a match? I thought there weren't any pickleball. Clearly, places. well, he said he was having he said he was having to travel out to Athens, Decatur, uh, <laughs> some some other, some other place. I forget. Um, but you know, I, I used to play tennis, so I was listening to him a little closely. But maybe I should try pickleball. It sounds like the bee's knees. Yeah. Uh, well, you're behind the times, clearly, since you're yeah, not. Yeah. So you are. You well, know, uh, who who isn't in some way or another? Right. Um, there you go. All right. The uh, following week, second meeting in July. Um, the thing that caught my eye. Uh, so talking about the Toyota Stadium again, the uh, city's currently building more on ramps over there for Town Madison. Mm -hmm. uh, if you've driven past there, you know it's kind of uh, kind of awkward to exit if you're going west uh, you have to get off on zert and go in that way so they're trying to build more uh high speed ramps in but during the construction of one of these ramps uh they well they didn't strike gold they struck um old acetylene tanks they've uh there's some pictures i sent uh and i can describe them for people who are just listening uh if you have those um but uh while, while digging and groundbreaking for some of these ramps they found uh, they said about 2,500 old acetylene tanks, and these were rusted out steel tanks that were lined with asbestos. Um, and they're just laying there in a pit. It looks like it was 20 feet deep or so. They excavated these with a backhoe, and uh, ALDOT is paying to get them sent away and disposed of properly. Um, but a, a contact of mine, a friend of mine, uh, asked his dad about it because I was just uh, I was telling him about it. And his dad remembered a welding shop being there something like 30 years ago. So, uh, and that shop is long since gone. I haven't been able to find anything about it. Um, if, I'd be interested to hear if anybody does know more, but it sounds like somebody probably knew a friend with a backhoe, didn't want to pay for the proper like EPA way to get rid of these asbestos laden tanks. And so just 
dug a doggone big hole and buried them in there and hope nobody would ever find it. And uh, wow. for 30 years, it seems like they were right. Who knows if they're even still around? Wow. Jeez. Yeah, and we've got wild. we've got pictures of those. Adam, can you show those on the screen for the people that are um, uh, and, and for the people that are, uh, uh, you know, listening, it, it's just as as uh, Tristan described. <laughs> Yeah, if I can actually find those pictures, I, I'm sorry. They're uh, right under the clip. Oh yeah, 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 I see it. Actually, I do see it. Um, whoops, sorry, that's our pickle ball, ball guy. Oh, we don't want to have him again. Yeah, here we go. Oh my gosh, that's that's wild. Pile, yeah. And the first picture, you could see where one was propped open. All that, uh, all the white material. They need that with acetylene to keep the gas from decomposing because I believe it has an organic component. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it just it's just wild. It, it, to to me, it's it's sort of a uh, a very visceral piece of town history. It's almost mm -hmm. like digging up bones, right? Like right. what what happened? How do we build a? How do we construct a story about this? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I hope it gets like properly disposed this time, like for real, for real. Um, fingers crossed. Yeah, I think they're being sent to um, like an environmental hazard disposal facility in another state. I forget exactly where. Sorry. Um, last thing I want to talk about is a little less fun than the other two. Um, one of the meetings uh, this month in August, um, there was an example of what I'm calling the Floridification of education. There was a apparently concerned parent who brought in a book to the council and read a passage from it, and he was uh, he was very emotional. He uh, he was claiming that this book was not an appropriate one to have uh, uh, for children to have access to. And the scene uh, the scene was fairly disturbing. It was it was uh, an instance of child abuse in the book uh, coming from a guardian. Uh, however, I did a little digging and found the book he was talking about is. The Watsons Go to Birmingham slash 1963. It's a historical fiction novel that takes place uh, during the civil rights movement. And I wasn't really surprised to find that. Uh, I, I've, on all the stories that I've been seeing, uh, the people who are most verbally and outwardly concerned about inappropriate material uh, seem, seem pretty uh, prone to target books that are uh, historical or from another from a perspective their children might not belong to. You know, this was a this was a white father who didn't really give any of this context in his book, but or in his uh, speech. But the book is about a uh, black family who is moving from one city to another during this tr uh, troublesome time, and the scene in question is uh, the the troubled child has been playing with matches. The grandmother is trying to teach him a lesson to get him to quit and she makes some decisions which she later comes to regret but of course none of that context made it into his speech he just found the most uh visceral parts of it to try and get a reaction right yeah and so presumably the book is not condoning this behavior and no absolutely not absolutely not and I remember, and he said his uh, child was in fourth grade, I think. And I remember when I was in middle school around sixth grade, uh, we were all encouraged to read a book called Daniel's Story, which was a very disturbing uh, sort of a historical fiction account of a Holocaust victim uh, that really detailed like the ghettos and the camps mm. and just the the loss of loved ones that 
they experienced during that. And yes, it was one of the most graphic and disturbing things I had read at that age, but I think I learned like valuable lessons from it and we were able to process it as a group and uh, talk about it. So I don't think that, I, I think that all this talk of um, material being inappropriate is a screen for a uh, another motive and I don't really trust it when I hear it. Hmm. Uh, that's my take anyway. Well, my, you know, especially regarding stuff like that, where, you know, graphic depi depictions of, of uh, you know, situations that are not good, uh, but not being condoned, you know, it's, I, I wonder how much of the Bible people uh, like that have read, uh, because... I, I, I thought about that too, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, all right, well, uh, was there anything else that you had for us this week? Uh, not in my notes. If you have any questions about what's going on, I'll I'll see what I can dredge up real quick. Otherwise, I'll talk to you guys later. I don't think so. Adam, do you? No, I really appreciate it, Tristan. And uh, keep us posted on the uh, possible book banners. Uh, hopefully they don't gain any traction here or anywhere. Sure, I'll try and look up some uh, Board of Education meetings. They might have also been targeting. Mm. Uh, that'll be hard to watch, but uh, I'll try and bring it to you. So, right. yeah. <laughs> Thanks for your service, Tristan. Thanks, Tristan. Appreciate <laughs> yeah, it. all right. I'll catch you guys <laughs> later. Have a good one. All right, you too. Um, <clears throat> we've got another couple of segments we want to make sure that we get to this week. Uh, first up, last week in Southern Labor, every week, uh, workers in the South are on the move doing things, uh, fighting for their rights, and uh, winning and losing, lots of stuff happening. So here's what Southern U.S. workers were up to from August 18th to the 25th. In new election filings, 36 workers at the North Carolina Education Association of Educators in Raleigh, North Carolina, filed for a union election with the North Carolina Staff Organization, and then, did you see this, Adam, withdrew their petition in the same week? Yeah, I tried to do some digging about that. I've asked around. I'm waiting for some information about it. I assumed that this was a merger of a professional staff union and an mm. associate staff union, right, and merging into one wall-to-wall -wall union. Mm. Uh, but to be continued. Mm. 22 workers at Statesville Painting and Maintenance in Danville, Virginia, filed for a union election with the International Union of, of Painters and Allied Trades, Dis District Council 53. 82 workers at Quest Diagnostics, Incorporated in Tucker, Georgia, filed for a union election with the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, Local 728. 32 workers at Ray Magnet Wire Company in Ashland, Virginia, filed for a union election with the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 666. 200 workers at Lockheed Martin Bluegrass Station in Lexington, Kentucky, filed for a union election with the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. And 60 workers at Smart Simple Solutions in Leesburg, Virginia, filed for a union election with the Iron Workers International Union. We had a few withdrawals last week. Restaurant Associates in McLean, Virginia, Jones Lang LaSalle workers in Jacksonville, Florida, and Ardent Mills workers in Sherman, Texas all withdrew their petition for a union election. We had a few results. 65 workers at Santa Preen Production Pensacola in Cantamont, Florida voted against unionization with the IBEW Local 773 26 to 34. 
11 workers at NeuroTour Physical Therapy in Marietta, Georgia, voted in favor of unionization with the International Alliance of Theatrical and Stage Employees 7-4. to IATSE said in a statement that this will be the first time ever the union will be negotiating a contract with touring physical therapists. Way to go, IATSE. 2,500 Ph.D. students at Duke University voted in favor of unionization with the Duke Graduate Student Union 1,000 to 131. I believe this is the first ever certified graduate student union in the South. Duke is a private university, so is under the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, in strikes and bargaining updates, we've got a lot. The WGA and SAG-AFTRA continue their strike against the media companies, and five late-night hosts started a podcast, presumably to cure their boredom, but also to raise money for their striking employees. Stephen Colbert, Jimmy Kimmel, Seth Meyers, Jimmy Fallon, and John Oliver have started the new podcast, Strike Force 5. You can listen to it on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. All the money made will go to the employees of those five late-night hosts. Workers at Starbucks in Scottsboro went on the first-ever strike at the company in the state of Alabama, citing inconsistent scheduling, a refusal to make repairs that led to trip and fall hazards, and a refusal to bargain. You can read more about that on tvlr.fm. United Campus Workers, CWA Local 3865, announced last week that after a six-month campaign by the union, uh, the University of Tennessee Knoxville announced major increases to <coughs> Minimum stipends for graduate assistants across the university. Graduate stipends for nine-month and 12-month contracts will immediately rise from 19,000, uh, will immediately rise to $19,401 and $25,868 per year, respectively, which represents a 35% and 44% raise from the previous minimum stipends of $14,400 and $18,000, respectively, for 9-month and 12-month contracts. Workers at a Dunkin' Donuts in Atlanta organizing with the uh, Union of Southern Service Workers went on strike for raises, better hours, vacation time, and benefits. UAW President Sean Fain highlighted how far apart the union and Ford is in their bargaining, with Ford coming to the table asking for concessions GM and Stellantis have yet to offer a counterproposal. The union filed a unfair labor practice for refusal to bargain against GM and Stellantis. And 500 auto workers with the UAW Local 863 in Louisville, Kentucky, held practice pickets last week. We're going to have more about the UAW negotiations in overtime. <coughs> CWA members at Maximus, the call center workers that help Americans navigate the ACA marketplace and Medicare, uh, including workers from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, took part in the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington to demand more paths for advancement, higher pay, and more breaks. The company has laid off hundreds of employees this year, the CWA alleges in retaliation for union organizing. In politics and legislation, friend of the show Warren Tidwell was appointed to the governor's uh, Resilience Council for the state of Alabama. We're really excited about his voice being on the council. The council will work with local, state, federal, and private partners to help communities build stronger, live safer, and recover quicker. The work of the council will be aimed at better preparing Alabama's communities to withstand events that result in harmful societal impacts. You'll remember that Warren Tidwell was a former employee of Hometown Action 
before uh, starting his own nonprofit organization in Camp Hill, Alabama, to aid in long-term recovery efforts after a particularly bad hailstorm that left, if I remember correctly, something like 80% of the roofs in that area uh, destroyed. Very bad stuff, uh, but great to have him, his voice on the council. Absolutely. The Department of Labor announced last week that it is moving to expand overtime protections to an estimated 3.6 million more workers. The rule would restore and extend overtime protections to low-paid salaried workers by raising the salary cap from $35,568 to uh, $55,000 a year. That is a huge increase. It will also better identify which employees are executive, administrative, or professional employees who should be overtime exempt. The rule would automatically update the salary threshold every three years to reflect current earnings data and restore overtime protections for U.S. territories. From 2004 until 2019, the department's regulation ensured that for U.S. territories where the federal minimum wage was applicable, so too was the overtime salary threshold. The department's proposed rule would return to that practice and ensure that workers in U.S. territories subject to the federal minimum wage have the same overtime protections as other U.S. workers. The Texas law forbidding municipalities from enacting worker protections above what the state sets was declared unconstitutional by a Texas judge, but the ruling has been appealed and waits a final decision. The Treasury Department released a new study about unions, and the findings are they are good, folks. Specifically, it found unions raise the wages of their members between 10 and 15 percent. Unions also improve fringe benefits and workplace procedures such as retirement plans, workplace grievance policies, and predictable scheduling. Unionization also has spillover effects that extend well beyond union workers. Competition means workers at non-unionized firms see increased wages too. Heightened workplace safety norms can pull up whole industries. Union members improve their communities through heightened civic engagement. They are more likely to vote, donate to charity, and participate in a neighborhood project. And the higher pay and job security of both union and non-union middle class workers can further spill over to their families and communities through more stable housing, more investment in education, and other channels. Unions can boost businesses' productivity as well by improving working conditions and by giving experienced workers more of an input into decisions that design better and more cost-effective workplace procedures. Very cool report from the U.S. Department of Treasury. Here's another announcement from the U.S. Department of Labor. They announced last week that uh, they will award more than $3 million to the state of Georgia to help identify and address barriers workers face when accessing state unemployment insurance benefits. The grant will be administered by the Department's Employment and Training Administration and support Georgia's efforts to remove barriers related to race, age, ethnicity, language proficiency, disability status, geographic location, or other issues that make it hard for people to access unemployment insurance benefits. Funding is provided by the American Rescue Plan. We need that in Alabama. Yep. In internal union affairs, AFL-CIO President Liz Schuler and Secretary-Treasurer Fred Redman delivered an inaugural State of the Union's address uh, last week where they released new polling, which underscores the American people's support of unions, especially that of, non, uh, of young workers, uh, those of which that are under 30, support unions at approximately 90%. Uh, 
as well as Americans' view of unions as critical, as well as uh, Liz Schuler's and Fred Redmond's view of unions as critical to growing the middle class and providing opportunities for working people to thrive. Additionally, both officers stressed that with this unprecedented level of support, working people in unions are prepared to organize like never before, hold big corporations accountable, and restore America's promise for all. A rural carrier for the U.S. Postal Service is seeking to decertify the National Rural Letter Carrier Association as the union representing rural carriers over what he says is the union failing to present them well, in particular with respect to the Postal Service's new policy that will cut the pay of two-thirds of rural carriers. The campaign is being led by a fellow who says he is a 15 member of the union and was a steward for a year before resigning. He is also saying that he is working with the Teamsters while the Teamsters say they are not working with him. Interesting. Interesting. The UAW turned 88 years old last week. The un uh, unions and labor groups sent a letter to the Hyundai CEO pushing for Hyundai and its subsidiaries to hire locally, train workers from the communities around the plants, bolster safety standards, and protect the environment around the plants, which are expected to employ more than 30,000 Georgians and Alabamians. The coalition is seeking a binding agreement modeled on one reached last year with the electric bus maker New Flyer, which promised, among other things, that at least 45% of new hires and 20% of promotions would be women, minorities, and U.S. military veterans. Also very important there is card check neutrality as yes. part of that community benefits agreement. Steve Stutz, former international representative for the International Union of Operating Engineers, the local's business manager, and a current board member of the Muscle Shoals Democrats, said last week that it has been 29 years since he was first appointed to the international staff. He shared a newspaper clipping on Facebook where it was reported on in 1994, and I found that fascinating, the idea that we would have a press that cares enough about working people to report on a local union member being appointed to international staff. Not totally sure that we would see something similar today. If we missed something, please let us know, tvlr.fm slash contacts, and we will include it in next week's update. Uh, finally, the last segment we're going to hit today is Boss Watch. Every week, bosses are breaking the law and uh, injuring their employees. So it, these are the illegal activities of Southern Bosses for the week ending on September the 1st. Starting in Alabama, this is a fascinating story. Last year, in the summer of 2022, Brett Savage, a 36-year-old communications technician with the Alabama Forestry Commission and a resident of Deetsville in Elmore County, was killed instantly when the communications tower he was helping a crew remove unexpectedly fell on top of him in Washington County. Savage had only worked for the agency for three months, and he left behind his wife and five children. Mm. Last week... An unlikely outlet highlighted the story of his family trying to get accountability. That outlet was 1819 News. And the article was, I mean, it was really genuinely good. Like, actually really good. Uh, an article that you would, you know, if, you if I had read that in a real news outlet, I would have 
believed it, <laughs> that it was a, a real a real news outlet doing this. But, you know, credit where it's due. So here's what 1819 News reported. Dusty Savage, Brett Savage's older brother, said the family has not been given a lot of details about what happened, and they want to know how this kind of incident will be prevented in the future. They also want the public to know that the, uh, the loss they have suffered. 1819 said that the family reports having contacted several agencies and people involved but they say nobody is taking responsibility. Savage also claims that his brother did not have any kind of training to do that kind of work. And that makes sense. He's only been on the job for three months. Because the Occupational Safety and Health Act exempts state and municipal governments, and because Alabama, unlike many states, does not have our own version of the Occupational Safety and Health Act, the... Uh, the OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which is a specialized, uh, a specialized body focused on safety and health, they could not investigate the incident. Instead, the local sheriff's office supposedly investigated and told the wife that her husband's death was, quote, accidental. Here's a quote from 1819 News uh, that they had from the brother. I think they should be held accountable because, honestly, anybody else in Alabama would be in jail. If you were out there with no certifications doing that and somebody got killed, the people responsible would be in jail. I'm not trying to get anybody put in jail, but this doesn't need to happen to other people, and they shouldn't be exempt from OSHA, from an OSHA investigation just because they're a state agency. We could not agree with him more on that, even though, unfortunately, the brother is wrong about the consequences that private employers would face for killing somebody, but at the very least... Unlike state agencies, it wouldn't be nothing. So kudos to 1819 News for reporting that, and best of luck to the brother. Right, and we need to get that changed in Montgomery. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh on coal miners, the U.S. Department of Labor announced last week that its Mine Safety and Health Administration completed impact inspections at 15 mines in 12 states in July of 2023, issuing 288 violations and four safeguard notices. Among the 288 violations that MSHA found in July, the agency evaluated 82 as significant and substantial, which are reasonably likely to cause reasonably serious injury or illness, and found one to have an unwarranted failure finding, which is an aggravated conduct that constitutes more than ordinary negligence. The agency completed inspections at mines in Alabama, Alaska, California, Colorado, Idaho, Iowa, Kentucky, New York, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and West Virginia. From July the 17th to the 18th in 2023, MSHA conducted an impact inspection at Buzzy Unisem's USA's Lone Star Prior Plant Mill and Quarry in Mays, Oklahoma selected uh, given its previous enforcement history so this mine has previous run-ins with the law the mine's operator was cited for 53 violations again after having already been cited for violations in the past among them 25 were significant and substantial violations specifically the agency found that buzzy unisam usa's violations included exposing miners to hazards related to energized electrical conductors accumulated combustible materials and improperly maintained firefighting equipment the mine has been cited in the past for allowing exposed electrical conductors and for permitting waste or rags with flammable or combustible liquids to create a fire hazard 
and failures to install and maintain guards, provide a safe means of access to work areas, store materials properly, identify chemicals in use with proper labels, and to maintain compressed air systems as required. MSHA had found that the mine operator allowing many of these conditions to exist before the July in impact inspection. Earlier this year, the agency issued a hazard alert related to hazardous chemicals and continues to raise awareness about this issue. Heading over to Texas, Chris Begley, a UPS teamster of 28 years with local six, uh, 767 and father of two, died after a sweltering shift four days after, uh, after four days of trying to recover and one day in the hospital. The Teamsters said in a statement last week, the Teamsters ratified our national master agreement at UPS that includes air conditioning in new vehicles, retrofitting of existing vehicles with heat shields, fans, and cargo ventilation, and a new safety and health committee to enforce company violations. While these improvements will make a difference in the months and years ahead, we had to fight like hell to secure them. Chris Begley should still be alive to experience them. All companies, including UPS, need to remember that their past failings to protect workers can have deadly consequences in the future. OSHA told NBC News that it has opened investigations into more than 20 heat-related workplace fatalities in Texas this year alone. This came only days after a Texas law that eliminated municipalities' abilities to enforce water breaks uh, through local ordinances went into effect. In Tennessee, unfortunately, Brother Begley was not the only Teamster to die from the heat last week. Tony Rufus, an 11-year Kroger Distribution Center worker in Memphis and member of Teamsters Local 667, also died from heat illness. They said that he went to produce to try to cool off after a long shift, and that's where he passed out and died in front of all of his co-workers. According, according to The Guardian, this comes after the union had asked the company to allow more breaks and cooler working conditions to no avail. After his death, members of Local 667 are asking that management sit down with them to work out new heat protections to prevent this from happening again. But Kroger has not made any commitments to bargain in good faith over changes, much less committed to any concrete changes themselves. We had several dishonorable mentions. A FedEx customer in Oklahoma said she saw her delivery person collapse in her yard. The customer and their neighbors brought the driver ice packs to help him cool down, offered to call 911, but the driver called the boss instead, who then began to yell at the driver, chiding him for not having drank more Gatorade and to get back to work after 30 minutes of rest. The neighbors heard the driver urged the driver to call 911 after no improvement, but he called his boss instead again, who again yelled at him and told him not to call an ambulance. Fortunately, the neighbors called an ambulance and the driver got medical attention. Two federal investigators have recovered $540,000 in wages for 268 H-2A workers from a father and son then operating as North Carolina farm labor contractors whose violations of federal laws included failing to pay some workers their full wages to provide safe and adequate housing and to reimburse workers' transportation costs. U.S. Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division investigators found Patel Shippers LLC, which provides fruits and vegetables from India and Asia to grocery stores 
stores in 10 states, including Florida, denied 25 workers overtime wages by paying them straight time rates for all hours worked, including for hours over 40 in a work week. The employer also failed to pay three workers at least the federal minimum wage by not keeping an accurate record of hours worked. The Department of Labor uh, recovered $71,000 in back wages and damages. The U.S. Department of Labor has cited Houston, Texas area engine component manufacturer Air Starter Components again for failing to correct safety hazards that caused an employee's finger amputation in March of 2022. OSHA proposed $127,000 in penalties after its follow-up inspection and $171,000 in penalties for failing to remedy the 2022 violations for a total of $298,000 in proposed penalties. One person is dead and two are injured after a workplace accident at Warrior Met Coal last week. The Mine Safety and Health Administration and the union, the United Mine Workers of America, are investigating. A Gunnersville man died Thursday night at a workplace accident, according to authorities. Coleman County Coroner Jeremy Kilpatrick said that Michael Thompson, 38, died in the incident at Coleman Casting on County Road 490. The incident happened shortly after 10.30 p.m. The body has been sent to the Department of Forensic Sciences for an autopsy, and police are investigating. The Environmental Protection Agency and the U.S. Department of Justice announced that Japan-based Tadano Limited and its subsidiaries will pay a $40 million civil penalty and contribute an additional $3.2 million to reduce diesel emissions to resolve allegations that it violated Title II of the Clean Air Act. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, CFPB, sued Southern, a high-cost installment lender, for illegal loan-churning practices that harvested hundreds of millions of dollars in loan costs and fees. The CFPB alleges that the company identifies borrowers who are struggling to repay their existing loans and then aggressively pushes them to refinance. Borrowers become trapped in the loan turning scheme and often are forced to refinance multiple times. The CFPB is seeking to end Southern's unlawful loan churning practices to gain redress for harmed consumers and to require Southern to pay a civil money penalty. The Federal Reserve Board on Tuesday fined regions approximately $2.95 million for unsafe and unsound practices in its flood insurance compliance program and for flood insurance regulatory violations. And that is going to be it for us today on the radio. If you want to continue watching the show, we are live online on Facebook and YouTube. We're going to be talking to Sean Orr, the co-chair of Teamsters for a Democratic Union and a Teamster, uh, a UPS Teamster talking about the new ratified contract at UPS and what happens next. So you don't want to miss that conversation. Uh, otherwise, folks, we will see you next week.